0: Welcome to Living Love, the radio broadcast ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Benton, Illinois. Our desire is to live love to God, to others, and the nations. We hope this week's broadcast will bless and encourage you. Now, let's dive into God's word and see how we can live love today. My name is Greg Whaley, and greetings from the sovereign state of Louisiana. Uh, It's probably about 89 degrees right there in Louisiana now, so I'm enjoying this uh, cool weather. I want to say a word of thank you to the search committee and the staff. Let me tell you, this weekend has been full of just an earnestness and a thoroughness that is uh, something to be proud of, Emmanuel. So you can be proud of your staff, proud of your committee. They have done a yeoman's job uh, throughout this whole process. I know it's not the process that any of us considered the the way it was going to go, but uh, it's the way it happened, and God is with us, and we are here this morning I want you to hear my heart about ministry and theology the base foundation of my theology and when I get done in a couple of hours you'll know everything you need to know about what I think about Jesus now I know you didn't come this morning to hear an old preacher joke like that so take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and I'll give you a new preacher joke it's all right I like to laugh if you don't like to laugh then uh, you know that's okay God bless you I got a friend named Joe. It's a great joke. Friend named Joe, and Joe's trying to lose some weight, so he's got this new diet, and it's called Hebrews chapter one. By the way, hurry up! Or I'll tell two jokes. <laughs> got a friend named Joe, and he's uh, trying to lose some weight. So he got it, found out about a great diet. It's called the Dolly Parton diet. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's fantastic. It works. It made my friend Joe lean. Jolene, Jolene, Joe, lean. Joe, lean. Joe lean. are you there yet? <laughs> Have you got to Hebrews chapter one? All right, great job. Hebrews chapter 1. You know, we're trying to figure out, uh, get to know each other. And what I want to talk about right off the bat is what's the most important thing about you? What's the most important thing about you? What's, what I hope you'll hear about uh, this sermon is what's the most important thing about me? What the most important thing about is everybody. Because a lot of us think the most important thing about us is our bank account, maybe. Maybe you've got a lot of money, and God bless you. That's great. So you think the most important thing is to keep making more. Maybe you think the most important thing about you is your good looks. There's a lot of good-looking folks here this morning. I'm grateful for that. Maybe the most important thing about you is your giant brain. You're a smart person. What other people think about you kind of drives a lot of what we do and what we don't do, right? So this morning, I want to tell you, tell you about what is the most important thing about me, is the most important thing about you, and it's the most important thing about everybody. It's not any of that stuff. The most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. I didn't say that. I'm not smart enough to say that. A.W. Tozer said that. But the most important thing about you, the most important thing about me, the most important thing we can know about one another this morning is what comes into our minds when we think about God. Because there's a lot of competing images in the world and in the church of what pops into our mind when we think about God. For a lot of people, for some people, maybe not a lot, but for some people, the mental image that comes into their mind when they think about God is kind of a genie in the lamp. Where, you know, you rub, the, you rub the lamp there and God pops out and says, hey, I'm here for you. And if you don't want to fool with God, well, then you just stick him back down in the lamp and you put it away until you need something. And so you're hoping that, you know, when things are bad enough, you rub the lamp. And maybe you don't rub a lamp, but maybe you show up at church. Or maybe you get on your knees. Or maybe you open your Bible. Maybe you pray for the first time in forever. Still rubbing that lamp. That's what pops into the heads of a lot of people when they think about God. For others, they think of God like Zeus, you know, the the Greek mythological God that's still kind of in our minds these days. We think God's like Zeus, and so as a figure who's waiting on the edge of heaven, just begging you, daring you to mess up, because he's got his thunderbolt ready, and if you mess up, ah, he loves, he relishes to throw it at you and cause a big problem. So we've got this wrong image of God that he's like a Zeus-like figure waiting for us to mess up, hoping that we will so he can judge us, so he can smite us, so he can hit us with his mighty thunderbolt. Some people have the image of their father in their heads. The image of their father comes into their heads when they think about God. And sometimes we transfer the personality of our earthly father into our mental image of our heavenly father. So if you had a, a bad or good earthly father, if you had a good one, praise the Lord. How wonderful is that? That's awesome. Not everybody's got that. And you tend to kind of project your good father's personality on God. If you have a bad earthly father, well, then you begin to suspect that God might not be good. But what I want to tell you this morning, we go on and on. There's lots of mental images that get into our head. What I want to tell you this morning is that suspicion that God is not good is the root of all evil. I didn't say that either. Oswald Chambers said it. God is always good. And if the most important thing about us is what pops into our minds about God. It behooves us on this Sunday to consider our ideas about God. I think what you most need to know about me, what I most need to know about you, is what comes into our minds when we think about God. And since I'm the one preaching today, you can start by hearing my heart. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says this. The writer of Hebrews begins by saying, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways... In these last days, verse 2, he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he, pronoun there referring to Jesus, the Son, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the power of his word. And when he, the pronoun referring to Jesus, when he made the purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better Than the angels, to the extent that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. What's my central idea about God? It is this God is good, he is always good. Goodness is his nature, he cannot be other than good. And if you don't know anything about me by the end of this time period, what I hope you'll know is man, he is good. He's always good. Goodness is his nature. And he can, this is important, this is last line, he can't be anything other than good. If he's something other than good in my mind, the problem's not on him, the problem's on me. Does that make sense? So I'm going to see three things here today about his goodness from this passage. First thing I want you to see is that God is good because He speaks. God is good because he speaks, and man, the goodness of God, the word of God, the power of God's word, it's a big deal. The the scripture says he spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many ways and in many portions, and we don't have enough time this morning to go through all of that, but I can give you a couple. He spoke creation into being. And so we know that his word has this power, and not some kind of power like our words. Our words have power too. But God's word has this creative power In the creation kind of Genesis. The spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters, you know this, and into the vast expanse of that silent space, the one agency that begins it all, all that we know, all that we are, all that we ever will be, is the voice and the word of God. What's the power of God's word? Genesis 1-3 says, Then God said, let there be light. And guess what happened? There was light. And God saw that it was Why? Because he is good. He's always good. He can't be anything other than good. Goodness is his nature. He's good because he speaks, and his word does good and is good from time immemorial, from the beginning to the end. He's good because he speaks, and he speaks creation into being. His word speaks the law onto the mountain, speaks the law on the mountain. So we know his word is not only powerful, it brings truth. One of the seminal moments in all of Scripture is Mount Sinai. If you've read the Bible uh, any number of times or you've been a believer for a while and you've gone through, get to Exodus chapter 20 and you come to Sinai, man, it's a moment. It's a moment that's going to ring through every age that is to come and every age that's still yet to happen. Exodus 19 and verse 18, listen to it. Listen to this great description. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke built up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently at the sound of the trumpet. It grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Can you imagine? It's such a powerful moment that after God speaks, people of Israel will completely freak out, and they will yell to Moses in no uncertain terms, you speak to God, not us, because if we have to talk to him, we'll die. Man, that's crazy. That's the power of God's word. It brings truth. It brings the law. So Moses speaks to God up on the top of the mountain, in Exodus chapter 20, what do we see? The very first word, Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke, boom, and then we get the Ten Commandments. And how important the Ten Commandments? They're huge. Every civilization refers back to it. It's our moral law that's woven into our hearts that God gives us. It's written there on the stone tablets, and God will do the writing. But first he speaks them because his word brings truth. And suddenly mankind has a moral law, a truth by which to measure himself among the world of people, a truth by which to know what way is right and what way is wrong. It is good. A good blessing, not just for the Israelites, but for the whole world. God is good. My friends, this morning I want you to know what I think about God, what pops into my head. God is good because he speaks. He's good because he speaks creation into being. His word has power. He speaks the law on the mountain. His word has truth. But guess what? If all we had was God's powerful word to us, and if all we had was the power of the truth of God's word to us, we still might not know he's good. If that's all we had, we might not know he is good. So we have verse 2 in Hebrews. So in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the world. You see, God's good, and we know he's good, because he speaks to us through Jesus, and Jesus is the one that reveals him. We'll talk about that in just a second. We know because God speaks to us through Jesus, we know that, that God's word is not just powerful and truthful, but that he means to be understood. Do you understand that? I hope it's not too difficult, but this is something that we kind of struggle with sometimes because we think, you know, well, I don't know, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what God, God wants me to walk through these, you know, open doors and closed doors, and, and he uses that kind of stuff. But we talked about last uh, yesterday in the, in the church-wide uh, question and answer. I don't I don't think God wants to do open doors and closed doors. Rats go through mazes with open doors and closed doors. But God wants more than that from us. He wants to speak speak to us, and we can understand what he wants and desires. And the reason we know that is because of Jesus, that his word is good. John 1 and verse 1. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. John 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being, not one thing. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. If you've been in the scripture any number of times, you know that word's not just any kind of word, that's the word logos, the Greek word logos, and it doesn't just mean a word or a written word, it really means kind of a speaking voice, the central idea Of God, it's capitalized because it refers to Jesus, and that's what Jesus is to us. He is the ongoing speaking voice of God that we can know by His Spirit. The mind of God—that's what makes Him good. They're not just empty words in a vast chasm of nothingness, but the idea, the speaking voice, the Logos of God, with Him in the beginning, bringing John says light. What does light do? See, right now I got these lights on, man. I'm sweating. And you can see how ugly I really am. You know, I could hide that in the dark, right? But you, I'm exposed. That's what light does it exposes us, it reveals the truth. John says he brings life and light to mankind, and the light shines in the darkness. God is good because he speaks through Jesus. We can understand his heart, his desire toward us. Jesus is the key that unlocks the mystery of the divine and the heart of his wayward children. Wow. So God's good because he speaks. But this scripture also tells us that he means to be understood through Jesus. And we can know that God is good because Jesus is the key that unlocks him. Jesus is the revealing nature of God. Look there what he says in verse 3. That he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. There's no ambiguity from the writer of Hebrews here no ambiguity at all. Exact representation means exact representation. Jesus is God in his very nature. In our quest to understand atonement and salvation, in our quest to kind of uh, remove the mystery from it and, and kind of, uh, you know, make it into a system, we err when we accept a theology that divides the Trinitarian nature of God. Now, those are big $3 theological words, So let me say it like we say it in Louisiana. What that means is we pull God and Jesus apart. Like Jesus is over here doing something and God's over here doing something and they're not on the same page. And when we do that, we err. We err because it messes up our understanding of God's nature. The writer of Hebrews says he's the exact representation. How much more clear can he be? He's the radiance of his glory. Remember in John 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, the logos of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no division in the Godhead between God and Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. They're working on the same team. That's a bad analogy, but that's all analogies are bad. They're working on the same team. There's no division. And I, and I reject any any theology that tries to divide them. Any theology that tries to divide them. Colossians 1 in verse 13 says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Who's the he in that sentence? It's not Jesus because the kingdom of the son, right? He's God. They're on the same team. God is doing the rescuing. God is moving us and transferring us from the domain of darkness. God is the agent and Jesus is the agent. They're both the same, the exact representation of his nature. God's good because Jesus reveals his goodness to us. And he's the exact representation of God's nature. And we also know in other places of scripture that what Jesus does is what God does. He doesn't do anything apart from what God is doing. John 5, verse 19, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to write it down, you can. Therefore Jesus answered and said to them, he's talking to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless there's something he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same way. Jesus doesn't do anything apart from the Father. He sees what the Father is doing, and Jesus does what the Father does. I heard one teacher say one time, say, this is, this is the secret of Jesus. This is God, this is Jesus' secret to a great life, though it's hardly a secret We don't have to wonder about what we need to do. We can follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's he doing? What the Father's doing. So we can do that too. Imagine what it would be like in your life, Christian, if your whole day was simply doing what you know the Father was doing and nothing else. In every situation. Now you say, nobody can do that. And I say, Jesus did it, and you say, yeah, but I'm not Jesus, and I say, well, hang on for a minute because we're not done with the sermon yet. Jesus reveals the Father to us by not deviating one whit from God's will or from God's way. That's his secret, though it's hardly a secret. Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature, and what Jesus does is what God does, and so here we go. How do we close the sentence, that we, the question that we asked earlier? When we imagine God, the mental image that should pop into our head is Jesus. Not any of those lesser things. When the mental image pops into your head when you imagine God, if it is anything other than Jesus, you're not seeing clearly. Remember, Colossians uh, verse one, chapter 1 and 15, he said, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. The message translation says it this way. We look at the sun and we see the God who cannot be seen. I like that. We look at the sun and we see the God who cannot be seen. So good news. Good news for you and for me today about the goodness of God. If you imagine God to be like Zeus, standing there in heaven with a thunderbolt ready to take you down with cancer, or rather to pull the rug out from under you just when everything's going going good because you messed up in some way, good news, he ain't like that because Jesus ain't like that. If you imagine some wishy-washy God who's only supposed to show up when you rub the lamp and give you whatever meager wish you think you desire, depending on your mood, I've got good news for you today. He ain't like that, because Jesus ain't like that. If this morning you have projected your own bad father, or even your own good father, onto the mental image of God, good news. If you had a bad dad that skewered your idea of what true fatherhood really is, I'm here to tell you, God ain't like that. And even if you had a great dad who loved and supported and nourished your soul in the way he should, I've got good news for you. God is even better than that. Jesus said in Matthew 7 verse 11, so if you, talking about us, if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask you? He's good. He's always good. He can't be anything other than good. Goodness is his nature. Jesus reveals him to us, and we see that he is good. So what pops into our minds when we think about God should be Jesus. Nothing else. Only Jesus. God is good. God is good because he speaks. God is good because Jesus reveals him to us. And the last thing I want you to hear this morning, thanks for listening. Y'all are so great and so wonderful. Your fellowship's so sweet, really. It's a great thing. Thank you for listening. The last thing I want you to see is God is good because in Christ, the powers of sin and death Do not win in us. God is good because in Christ the powers of sin and death do not win in us. Look there at the last part of verse 3 in Hebrews. When he, Jesus, had made purification for sins, of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better, and there's another goodness reference, so much better than the angels. What we can know from this passage is we've been hearing a lot about how God is good. What's not good? Sin itself. Sin and self are definitely not good. I understand you guys have been memorizing the Romans road at some point in the past few months. So you know, Romans six twenty three. the wages of sin is what? Death. Yes, death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What i like to say is sin is a wrecking ball. It's a wrecking ball. Have you ever seen a wrecking ball hit a building? I mean, it's a thing of beauty <laughs> if you want the building to go down. If you don't want the building to go down, it's not a thing of beauty. And I've never seen, in all my years, I've never seen a wrecking ball start way over here and make its way all the way to the solid building over here, come up against the building, and stop and bounce off. I've never seen that. Have you seen that? The wrecking ball always wins. Sin is like a wrecking ball. It's in your life. It's in my life. It's a power that is alive and at work in us. And the building always gives way to the wrecking ball. And that's exactly what sin does in us. Adrian Rogers, former pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, used to say this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And it will. Sin's a wrecking ball, a power, alive and at work in our fleshly nature. That's why Paul writes in Romans 7. I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you today, but you need to know some of the stuff I think. That's why Paul writes in Romans 7 in verse 19, the good that I want to do, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not want to do, but if the very thing I do, I do not want, I'm not the one doing it. Sin dwells in me. Left to my own devices, I'm always going to choose me. That's my nature. And I, God, I don't want to burst your bubble this morning. But that's your nature too. That's all of our nature. Left to our own devices, I'm going to choose me every time and be glad to do it. That's the sickness of sin in my life. I love me above all others, and I'm not strong enough to stand on my own against the wrecking ball that is sin. Paul says, wretched man that I am. Because of that, because of that, wretched man that I am, who can set me free from this body of death. In other words, what can be done about the problem of sin? Good news. God answers the problem of sin in the only good way it can be answered forgiveness. Forgiveness. And He does it through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. When Paul asks the question based on this sinful self that he's got, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? The very next line says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He answers his own question because Jesus offers forgiveness. And our verse says that Jesus makes purification of sins by his death and resurrection. And forgiveness is the only good answer to the problem of sin. And God is the only being good enough to offer it freely to those who would accept it. You I can hardly imagine a greater, a more good response to sin, a more right response to sin than God's response to sin through Jesus Christ. And so we cannot think lightly of this answer to the problem of sin. It's not something that is easily attained. The cost of sin is high, so high that only one person can truly pay it, God himself through Jesus Christ. And sometimes we're tempted to think lightly of sin, but when our eyes are trained upon the cross, the empty cross, signifying Christ's resurrection and death, resurrection and victory over death, when our eyes are trained upon the cross, we come to understand the full weight of sin because of the awesome cost required to answer the problem. If you think lightly of sin, guess what? Lightly of the Savior, and you've not considered the weight, the Latin word ponderous, the ponderous weight of your sin, if you think lightly of that or of the cross. So the writer of Hebrews calls us, not in this verse, but in chapter 12 and verse 2, to look where? Look only at Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set, these words, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God, the throne of God, and that brings us to our last point. Only winners sit on the throne. Did you know that? Only winners sit on the throne. In both places of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 and chapter 12, the writer reminds us that Jesus is the one who is at the right hand of the throne of God, the right hand of the majesty of God, sitting, reclining on the throne. And so Paul will rhetorically ask in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 55, so where death is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of sin, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be, there's that phrase again, thanks be to God, the winner, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't leave the throne of heaven to enter into the flesh of our humanity so we can be losers. Because if he's a winner, guess what? If you know him and his spirit lives in you, Who else is a winner? You are a winner, and I'm a winner. And God doesn't step out of infinity. Oh, I don't understand that. He doesn't step out of infinity, take on this flesh, this mortal coil, submit himself to the powers that be on this earth so that you and I can be bad at faith. You might be calling me to be your discipleship, Pastor. So I'm going to tell you the truth. I want to win. God wants to win. God's already won, and he wants you to win as well. Jesus doesn't take up his cross to the bitter end, die an ignoble death on a rough-hewn cross of wood in order for us to wonder if God wants us to follow him in the ways that he's calling us. He doesn't trample over the power of sin and death by resurrection-fueled power and glorious strength so we can sleep in on Sundays. Look out. Of course, this is a 8 o'clock crowd. You know, y'all are like, yeah, that's right, amen. <laughs> you tell them 1040 people that. We are remade to win because God wins. He don't lose. And because all Jesus does is win. Now, he may not win the way you think you should win. He wins an even better way because he's good. He can't be anything other than good. He's always good. Goodness is is his nature. You remember when I told you about the secret of Jesus, that he was only doing what the Father did? And you said, yeah, well, I'm not Jesus. Yeah, when you become his child through forgiveness, he takes up residency in you by his spirit, and he begins to live his life in you, his winning life in you. And his life is the winning life. And I'm not talking about winning at your job. I'm not talking about winning your finances. I'm not talking about winning in the admiration of men. I'm asking you this morning, are you winning? Is the Jesus winning life Alive and at work in you by his spirit, are you winning over sin in your life? Are you moving forward and not backward? Do you look more and more like Jesus than you did last year or five years ago or last week? I'm not asking about or expecting perfection. And by the way, Jesus doesn't either. I am asking if you're fighting. Are you leaning in and trusting him? Are you fighting because of his goodness? God is good. He's always good. He cannot be other than good. Goodness is His nature. Thank you for joining us for this week's broadcast of Living Love. If this message has impacted you in any way, please let us know. If you would like to contact us, find out more about our church, or if you'd like to support our mission, visit ibcbenton.com. That's I-B-C-B-E-N-B-E-N. T-o-n.com. or give us a call at 618-439-3513.